You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome to another episode of Post Growth Australia podcast. Michael Bayless is my name. Calling out infinite growth on a finite planet is my game. So last episode, I talked to Dr. Alex Bowman, who explained why the housing sector is a critical and yet overlooked component of the post-growth movement. Given that the essential human need of shelter has become privatised, commodified, and then inflated through the marketplace and finance sectors, this means the very act of putting reliable and safe shelter above your head means a massive drop into the matrix. As I've said before on this podcast, I'm now based firmly in the West Australian maritime town of Albany, or as I sometimes like to call it, Asbestos Town. Till now, it has been one of the few established towns with ocean views and, for Australian standards, a mild climate that neoliberalism hadn't yet quite got around to gentrifying and gobbling up. Being isolated and five hours southeast of Perth helps to delay the inevitable. Until now, that is. As such, it has been a bit depressing trying to buy an established property for under half a million that isn't an asbestos box or a subdivision with no garden. If you're closer to town, you often get both lucky. So I've ended up with a vacant block a bit out of town and I'm trying, hopefully not in vain, to build something decent with a sizable food forest and a native garden or before civilization completely collapses. This all comes with many considerable costs in terms of finance, time and resource use. However, renting is becoming even more difficult, so hey, choose your poison. PGAP's interview with Alex, launched two weeks ago, has done amazingly well by PGAP standards, if not by Joe Rogan standards. Perhaps the sad state of housing is the zeitgeist that unites us all. Either way, I thought I would continue the theme of housing by interviewing sustainable passive housing designer Simone Schenkel, director of the award-winning Victorian-based company Gruen Eco Housing. It did cross my mind whether bringing in someone from the construction industry into a podcast on post-growth would end up a bit of a case of the realms of matter and antimatter colliding. So I was relieved for everyone to find that Simone is as passionate about the environment as I am and a fellow critic of the state of the Australian housing sector. She is a strong advocate for making positive progress within the housing sector and the role that passive housing design plays in keeping down daily emissions whilst also improving quality of life. Given my current predicament, this interview was understandably very close to home in all senses of the word and I was madly scribbling down notes for the entire duration of our conversation. Also, given I've been speaking on Albany, I thought to keep the music of choice for this episode local and yokel. One of my Albany friends is sister to two of the band members from the Perth band Soon. Soon are a shoegaze-inspired band who I've loved and listened to madly for the last 10 years. Their track Little Pete's Playground reminds me in a melancholy type of nostalgia or soulstalgia for a longing for places from childhood that no longer exist. When I returned to Perth last year, this played out for me big time. 
The suburb I grew in, defined by its 1930s bungalows, were mostly mowed down to make way for a new wave of units and apartments. The house I grew up in and had so many memories in is currently a hole in the ground. It felt a bit like a childhood erase, perhaps an overlooked consequence for overdevelopment happening too fast. I hope you enjoy our conversation with Simone Schenkel from Gruen Eco Design. Welcome back to PGAP, and I'm very honoured to be sitting here with Simone Schenkel from uh, Gruen Designs. Simone, tell us a little bit about yourself, your passions, and what drives you, and how you're feeling today. <laughs> yes, thanks a, lo uh, thanks a lot for having me. Uh, I'm actually feeling quite good. Beautiful day today in Melbourne. Uh, yeah, so um, I'm the Director and Certified Passive Force Designer at Gruen Eco Design. And I think I've always been passionate about sustainable design. Um, even as a young girl growing up in Germany, um, I would watch nature doc documentaries with my mom all the time. And, and I could just never understand how someone could be wasteful with energy or water or even how you could uh, harm our planet or the animals. And it was just then kind of a natural thing once I went into architecture that kind of came through and that passion. What I think it's really important is to really bring this topic to mainstream awareness that, you know, uh, to make it more common practice because many people have no idea about, you know, how to improve the performance of their home or, or even what thermal comfort is. Many people don't even have an idea you know that houses can be better i think when i came to australia in 2007 i was really shocked on how cold our rental place was and i remember people kept telling me ah oh, you know we're in australia you don't need double glazing and you don't need insulation and whatnot but i was just not buying it because our place was just so terribly terribly cold and i remember back then i went to some talks in the city that talked about the newest and best innovations when it comes to sustainable design and i just thought hold on that's what i learned at uni a few years ago and that's then kind of when it made click for me and I thought, okay, actually my education was quite different to what people typically learn here in the architectural field. Luckily, I had uh, my first boss back then. He loved everything German and everything energy efficient. And he said, uh, you know, let's go for it. And he started to promote then the, the German designer. And back then, what I tried to do is was to promote the, the German way of building. Since then, I kind of thought it was my mission to, to shake up the building industry and educate people about the benefits of building and designing better homes. I really thought the industry needed a bit of a shake-up, and um, I think I was game enough to question how things are done and that they could be done better here. And one thing I did notice when I visited Germany several years ago um, was that everything felt a lot warmer inside yeah. and that people were a little bit better at preserving the heritage of city centres um, compared to Definitely. Australia. And that would be not only in Germany, but um, something that I'd say for most places in Europe. Definitely. Um, I mean, there the, the is a totally different history. You know, obviously cities are much older and many houses, they have been there for hundreds of years and they just get upgraded again. But it, it's just such a different way of building in, in Europe or Germany. The structure is way more solid, so you can much, much easier upgrade the housing stock versus sadly a lot of the Australian homes that quite badly, and I think we're going to talk about that later in more detail. Um, so, yeah, it's a little bit of a different basis, I guess, to start from. You are the director of Gruen Eco Design. 
based in Victoria, where I used to live until a few (laughs) months ago, um, which received an award in 2021 for the Best Passive Build Designer um, at the Architecture Awards then. Uh, is, is Yes, was that a correct paraphrase? <laughs> yes, so the Best Passive House Designer Australia thinks what they called me or us, which mm. yeah, is very, very exciting. And because yeah, mm. we, we do a lot of work in this field, so it's really great to get a bit of recognition for it. And, and really happy that you did have finally got some recognition for <laughs> your very good work. So tell Thank us you. a little bit more about Gruen, I note that there is a commitment from Gruen for designing eco-housing that is affordable, which is a huge relief for me as um, there's more than enough exclusive eco-housing out there to greenwash on behalf of the rich and the privileged. Yes. And it's really a bit of of a story behind it. So like I said, when I came to Australia, I was really... Uh, lucky that I could that I was working for people that you know were caring about the environment and then when I moved on for my next job I worked in an office as well that was designing highly energy efficient homes so I learned a lot about you know how things are done in Australia and obviously the climate is quite different to Germany so that was very very important and great um, but back then I had to tell prospective clients that if they had less than five or six hundred thousand dollars we just couldn't help them um, and as far as I know, um, many practices that do energy efficient homes are kind of the same. You know, they don't take on small projects or they might not take on projects that don't suit their design style. You know, often architectural practices, they have their certain signature style. And if you don't fit to them, you know, they just don't want to work with you. Um, and I must say that that really broke my heart uh, because I think you really no matter how much time you have available, you can always make your home more energy efficient and more beautiful. Um, and it might not end up being a house that can win you awards, um, but I think that's not the point. Um, the point is really making a difference and improving the way how people can live in their homes and how the homes can function. And uh, that was the main reasons or the, the backbones when I started to to build my own own business as well. Fantastic. I know this conversation is going to be very close to my heart and for the <laughs> next couple of years of my life because I've moved to Albany and bought some vacant land and then planning to build um, as small as a eco-house dwelling as I can get away with with a food forest um, and it'll be a matter of convincing the Shire and the <laughs> architects into that. So, <laughs> Sounds great. Uh, I think by this time next year I'll completely have lost my hair. <laughs> but now I know that um, just before we are talking about that, the sorry state Yep. <laughs> of Australian homes. Now, I've heard the majority of Australian housing is considered by many of our international designers to be little mm. more than glorified tents. And as yep. you were saying before, you know, when you're renting, just it was completely porous. Now, when I was living in Melbourne, I often ruefully joked that almost all the buildings there were designed for three weeks in mid-autumn and spring yes. when the weather was actually moderate. The remainder yes. of time is, was seesawing wildly from heater to aircon dependency, um, often in the same month in summer, you know, how yeah, Melbourne yeah. oscillates so wildly. So what are the fundamentals of passive housing design. Um, yes. The permaculture movement obsesses over north-facing <laughs> buildings, but I suspect exactly. there's a little bit more to it than that. Yes. So, I mean, you know, passive solar design is still very, very important because, you know, why wouldn't you use the sun's free energy? You know, you would be silly not to. Um, but passive house just goes quite a few steps further. So with, with passive solar design, it's a little bit, um, you know, almost trial and error. You know, you have the sun coming in nicely and um, if it's done well, the houses can perform very well. 
but sadly there is no guarantee for it. Um, and that goes back to a big problem in our construction industry or the building code. So many people might, might know about the star weighting and the energy weighting systems and whatnot. But sadly, it's all theoretical weighting on paper. So what it means is, you know, there, there are calculations done before the house is built uh, and they assume perfect um, installation of insulation, windows and everything. But sadly, in reality, no one is really responsible to check how it's done on site. So often uh, there are huge gaps in the insulation or windows are installed faulty and whatnot. And even it's something like if you have 5% gaps in your insulation, you lose more than 50% of the insulation benefits. There have been many, many tests done that so-called six, seven, or even eight-star homes. And in reality, they perform like two or three stars. And the sad thing is you just don't know. It's almost like a lottery, you know, playing the lottery. You, you might be lucky that you have good people working on your project, or you might not. And sadly, there aren't. there isn't really a way of knowing it which is one of the big, big reasons we are such a, a fan of the Passive House Standard. So the, the Passive House Standard is an international um, recognized rigorous but voluntary standard for energy efficiency in a building. And it really reduces uh, the building's ecological footprint. And um, passive houses need up to 90% less energy than a standard Sixta home. And the passive house standard is really one holistic construction certification standard that looks at the actual performance of the house rather than just on paper, like I said, like the current energy standard. So uh, for once, you have to do initial weighting at the start, which is much more complex and much more details in it than the star weighting. Um, but also, um, you have to check the actual performance of the house once it's built. So, so some people might have heard about the so-called blower door test, which is where you test the air tightness of the house. So that's a, another layer of, you know, to, uh, to really check has the house been built as it has been detailed. But then um, many people even in the industry ask, you know, why should I go for certification? You know, what's the point of going for certification and paying extra money for it? The big benefit with the certification is that you get an extra level of guarantee or quality assurance on top. So let's say, you know, obviously um, the designer or the architect has to do all the details and then the builder has to build the house. But if you have the certifier, he will scrutinize everything. So they look at all the details that we have done and see, is everything working? They look at all the calculations we have done, if everything is working. And also the builder has to do a, to document with photos if everything has been built the way it was documented. It's, it's almost like a photo love story, you could say, with, with every little detail. And then there is the blower door test at the end that has to verify the air tightness of the building. So you have many, many layers of quality insurance. And that really means you can actually get the house that was designed in the first place. And so, yeah, a bit of a different approach. <laughs> but yeah, we really, really love it. Wow, this is such an educational experience, you know, what happens on the other side. And I'm madly <laughs> scribbling <laughs> notes here because... Yeah, and, um, and maybe uh, just to say one thing more about it, what I almost forgot, and the, the outcome then is really um, an ultra-low energy building that required little or really no energy for heating or cooling. So even in the coldest or hottest part of the world. So because many people keep saying, ah, you know, passive house, it's just for Europe and you don't need it in our climate. Um, but it really, really makes such a huge difference. And actually in our climate here in Victoria or in Australia in general, that the climate is so mild, it's much, much easier to get 
the Pesafor standard. So you still can have, you know, big open windows and glazing and everything compared to Europe where the houses are fairly compact. It just really leads to highly energy efficient and especially healthy homes. Um, so what are the environmental implications of the status quo of building more glorified tents en masse and ad nauseum? <laughs> Why yeah. should we be concerned about the endless seas of cookie-cutter outer suburban homes with black roofs, no eaves and no tree cover, or the upturned concrete apartments with thin walls and definitely no double glazing. Um, I can hear you sighing here, so it's a frustration that we both share. <laughs> yes, Given yes. the huge amount of energy required to build a new construction from scratch, which I believe is actually uses up much more of the energy required than to run the structure itself once built. Does that mean it's critical if we must continue to build to get the structure right the first time around? Exactly. I think there are actually a, a, a lot of lot of changes that have to happen. And, and I think you talk about a lot. It's, it's all about, you know, just getting quick money or turning around things quickly and not really thinking about what happens after me and, you know, who cares. And I've, I found it quite interesting that a lot of Australian homes or these new apartments, they look amazing, you know, that they're really beautiful. The inside is designed by interior designers. They look really fancy. You could put it easily into magazines. But if you live inside, it's an absolute nightmare. And uh, many of those new apartments, they have mold. You know, after after a few weeks or months, they get mold inside. And so it, it's so many things that come into play. I mean, for, for once, um, if, we, if we put nature aside, and I mean, na nature aside to some degree, because we have to think about climate change and whatnot. Uh, but just even if you put it aside, um, the energy bills will just keep going up. They will keep going up over, over the years. And that means if you build houses that have high needs in heating and cooling to somehow stay comfortable, that means uh, that the people living in the houses have ever-growing expenses for, for bills. And usually it's the, the poorest people, you know, the, the ones that, that can't afford their, you know, even a new rental place or that can't afford to build a new home that live in those old, terrible rental places. Um, and it's just sometimes... You know, it's actually not livable to be inside because they can be so, so hot in summer that, you know, you, you can't be inside un unless the air conditioning is blasting and you just spend, a f you know, all your money on bills and it just keeps going up. Or the other way around in winter, it's just really, really freezing. It's, it's just not livable. I think there really have to be some big, big changes in the industry, how houses are built and more responsibility on the landlords and developers that they have to do better. I'm have lived in and know so many people who've lived in Melbourne uh, rentals that got pretty much flushed out because of the mould. Like, yeah. um, it was hard to come across a rental that wasn't completely moulding. And yeah. it's just like, you know, if this was a corporation or business or an office, mm. that would be like a WorkSafe uh, incident. But because it's a dwelling in which you live, you know, yeah. um, no one becomes implicated or the VCAT process is so um, daunting and drawn out in which no one <laughs> understands. And what, what many people don't know even is, and, and, and it's a really tricky thing with, with building and construction because, you know, the, the industry is talking about we have to improve the efficiency of the homes. And like you said, you know, they're glorified tents, so we have to get them a bit more airtight. So there is, you know, some things happening in the industry, but sadly it's kind of half knowledge or applying things wrongly. Um, because what many people don't realize is that we humans reproduce a lot of water. 
I think it's something like a three-person household produces more than eight liters of water a day just by, by breathing, by showering, by cooking. And the more we seal up our homes, the more this humidity stays inside. So, so in many cases, when people have mold in their bathrooms or behind the walls, it's not there is a leakage from the outside. It's the humidity is trapped inside and it, it forms somewhere. It forms in the coldest spots of the house and that where mold grows. Sadly, that, that is what had happened in, you know, like 30, 20 years ago in Europe, you know, where suddenly the houses got insulated and then mold everywhere. People get asthma, people get sick. It's, it's called kind of the sick building syndrome. And that is the point where people started to look then at ventilation. Um, and we're talking about mechanical ventilation. Because the, the thing is, in, in theory, to get all the humidity out of your house, you have to do proper cross-ventilation several times a day. So we're not talking about an awning window. You know, it's not enough if you have your awning window open. In, in theory, to get all the humidity out of your house or out of your apartment, you would need to open a door or a window, you know, fully for 10 to 15 minutes in the morning and 10 to 15 minutes at night. And then ideally, if, if you know, five or 10 minutes in the afternoon or something. But whoever does that, if it's hot outside, you know, you would never do that on a 40 degree days or on a 10 degree days. So that means over time, you just get that humidity built up inside. And um, I know many people that they're a bit... Um, you know, they, they, they find the, the, the thought weird, ah, yeah, but, you know, I want natural ventilation and I don't want a mechanical ventilation uh, to, to rely on a mechanical ventilation system. You know, many people are a bit against that, that thought or think it's, it's too restrictive. But in reality, it's the only way to control the humidity. And unless you live somewhere where the climate is perfect, it's 20 degrees all year round and you have the windows open all the time. You know, might be a little bit of a different uh, thing, but sadly, in, in most areas, even in Australia, that's not the case. Our climate is not made to have the doors open all the time. That's a bit of a misconception with passive houses as well, because many people think, oh, you can't open the windows anymore. But it's just not true. You can open the windows as much as you want, but you don't have to anymore. So that means when you have your 40 degree days or you're, you're at night, 10 or 13, you don't have to. So you have the constant fresh air inside and the system uh, makes sure that all humidity is taken out of your house and replaced with fresh, healthy air. And on top of that, you have the pollen filters and everything in it. So not only do you have nice, clean air inside, you have all the pollens taken out. So people have much less problems with asthma or hay fever in general. Yeah, so it's a, it's a big, big factor that just has to be looked at more and even in terms of COVID, you know, if, if you think about it, that, you know, everyone is talking about ventilation. So putting in those mechanical ventilation units into public spaces or schools would be such a game changer. But, um, yeah, it's a long way of making an appearance, I think, in the Australian market yet, mainstream. Yes, it's definitely baby steps in uh, this country. Now, look, I could talk to you about housing design for hours because <laughs> this is such a educational experience for me, as I said before. Um, but unfortunately, this is PGAP. So I'm going to broaden the scale a bit to look not just at the house, but, at, you know, the community. Um, now, suburbia was once described I forget by who off the top of my head, um, as one of the worst misallocation of resources. Now, passive designs don't just stop and end with individual houses, but also how we design our communities. Yeah. Uh, now, with full acknowledgement 
that your role is in getting to individual house right (laughs) and that's a big enough task on its own accord um, and getting people changed there. What is the one thing you'd recommend to town planners when considering the way that we build our communities? Yeah, I think what I might say now might be a bit controversial and many people might not like that, but I think privacy is overrated. So, so what I find here in Australia is that everyone is so concerned about their privacy and God forbid someone could see me in my garden or so, you know, someone could see me doing a barbecue or something. And what that means is it, le- it leads to all those uh, unit development or townhouse developments that have this tiny dark gardens in the background, you know, this tiny courtyards with high fences. It's really dark. You, you, you can potentially sit inside, but you can't see anything. And if I think about again at Europe, it's it's such a different lifestyle. So you you have those apartment or unit developments as well, but there are low fences, there are shrubs in between. You go into your garden and you actually see your neighbors and you start talking with them. So oh hey, I'm doing my garden work today, or I'm I'm doing a barbecue now, and you get to know them. So you get to know your neighborhood and you, you form friendships, you form a proper community. At the moment, the problem is if you design or build homes in Australia, you're forced to do those high fences. In most cases, you're not even allowed to create an open area. So I, I think it's that that's the starting point. But then it's more, I think we have to go away from this private courtyard, private backyard setting to more multi-generational living and more communal spaces. For instance, and again, back to Germany, it was amazing when, when we did our last holiday there in 2019. So there is this uh, really huge estate. It's in, in um, close to Heidelberg, and it's actually a passive house estate. So it, it's one of the, the biggest residential areas with passive house apartment buildings. And so you have to imagine is this kind of courtyard building with apartments. You know, there is a, a big, big courtyard in the middle. And actually the child care, the child care center was in the middle of this courtyard. So, you know, all the apartment buildings, everyone can see it. And, you know, there, there are families, there are elderly people. Everyone sees each other. Everyone is connected with each other. And then you have aged care together with it. And just everything is together. Everything is connected. And it's, it's such an amazing community. Here in Australia, kind of everything is so separated, so far apart. And I really think it's, you know, it's, it's the way how things should be. You know, you should have the, the elderly together with the kids because, you know, the little ones, they can learn so much from, from the older generation. And probably the, the elderly people, you know, if they're alone, for instance, they, they might really brighten up by seeing the kids or maybe even helping in, in, on, on the playground or something. It's, it's just a completely different approach to yeah, to living together or having more shared common garden areas and things like that. I really think, you know, in Australia, everyone has this dream of this big freestanding mansion or home. I think we have to get a bit away from this focus on being private and, yeah. Now, just to clarify, when you said Heidelberg, that was uh, Heidelberg in Germany. Yes, yeah, yeah, sorry, Heidelberg in Germany, not in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Heidelberg in Germany is one of the most beautiful places in the world. There is actually a community housing development. I'm not sure if you've ever seen it in Murundaka, which is in West Heidelberg in Melbourne. Yes, there is one. 
you know, things like this are amazing. You know, we just need more of it. it. It's like they're almost talking about film set houses before. They're also film set eco developments where become the exception, not the rule. It's like, look, we're doing okay because this mm. is one green design that we've done. Yeah. And, and now we're doing green design and wow, the future's safe. And meanwhile, they're just <laughs> making more of these McMansions and out of suburbia and upturned concrete apartments. So, yeah. you know, these things have got to be the uh, rule and not the exception. Yeah. yeah. And uh, just going back to one thing, what you said before, you know, all those uh, mansions or, or volume builder homes without eaves, uh, because I have many discussions with people about it, why are they not building eaves? And uh, I thought, you know, maybe I, I just mentioned that why this is happening. So um, there's actually a rule in Australia when you build how much solar access you have to have for to, to windows. And obviously, uh, volume builders, they want to maximize the site. You know, they want to maximize how much they can build onto the site. So if you want to have eaves on your house, you have to be a bit further away from the boundary, just to simplify it. Otherwise, you don't comply with the solar access rule to the windows. Um, but again, volume builders don't want to do that because they want to maximize how much they can build on your block. So that means they have to do, they can't have any eaves. So that's just a simple rule why. All the thank you. I'd always wondered why. Yeah. Um, I almost <laughs> feel more depressed from the answer now. I mean, nothing against volume builders. I mean, they don't mean bad in as such, but mm. it's just, you know, those houses, they're just so huge and so massive and so much wasted space. And um, we often have people come to us and they say, ah, we want a 300 or 350 square meter house. And then I often say, hold on, you know, one step back. I'm sure you've probably seen some 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 houses, some display homes, but you know, completely disregard how big those houses are. Just tell us what do you need? What are the rooms that you need? And are there some things you can combine? You know, it's not about you don't need the third guest bedroom or you don't necessarily need all those extra rooms. How can we make the space work? How can you come up with multifunctional spaces and usage? And then, you know, our task then is it to come up with a compact, simple floor plan that gives you all of that and usually much, 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 much smaller than those massive mansions. But yeah, it's, it's often a misconception. People think their house has to be a certain size in order to fill in all the things they need. When in reality, it's usually you need a fraction. You know, I was just thinking about your comments you made earlier about um, people in Australia wanting almost complete privacy and separation from the neighbours and how ironic it is that you move to a city of five and a half million people <laughs> and don't actually want to interact with anyone, you know. It seems yeah. like um, a, a mission impossible there. <laughs> it's a bit yeah. hard to maintain. Now, I'm going to get a little bit political. I apologise. <laughs> but all good, you know. all good. <laughs> now, personally, I blame the sad state of Australia's housing situation on late-stage capitalism. And that's the fact that we have an economy reliant on speculation of existing property and the endless construction of what remains of the natural world. If housing is seen as an investment first and somewhere to live second, does this encourage a culture of careless building and cutting corners? Mm. If land values are guaranteed to rise anyway, it doesn't exactly encourage a culture of thoughtful consideration to long-term consequences. Um, if the housing market is determined to price everyone not a millionaire out of the club, 
how then can the majority of people do the right thing if the only thing they can afford is somewhere pre-designed on mass and extreme far reach of a satellite suburb? Now, million-dollar question after my rant. Um, <laughs> what is at least one thing that you think needs to change systemically so eco-housing is a norm? Yes. So it's a hard question to answer just with one thing. But um, you can say many if you like. Let's, it's a few. <laughs> I mean, there are several things that have uh, happened. I think one f big, big thing is education. So consumers just have to know uh, that there are better ways. Because what I often find is many people, like I mentioned before, don't even know what thermal comfort is or they don't know that houses should be better and can be better. Um, and I really think everyone should have the right to live in a healthy, sustainable home that doesn't cost the earth. And it, it's actually not that hard. Um, but the, the, the thing is, yeah, so for, for once we have to educate the consumers that they know there is better and it needs to be better. But the second thing is there need to be a massive shift in the entire construction industry. So I really think that sustainable design and, and energy efficiency and whatnot needs to be uh, brought forward in all you know, whatever um, schools and construction industry builders, trades, town planners, whatever. So there needs to be a massive shift there to get just more knowledge into people as well. Because often what I find is, you know, builders don't want to build bad houses, but it's often they just don't understand the implications of, okay, you know, we skip a little bit of insulation here. What's what's the point? You know, not going to harm anyone, but actually it will harm someone. The house will perform bad and you might get mold inside. So it's really about educating them in the first place. Um, the next thing is as sad as it is, but unfortunately the masses will not do the right thing unless they're forced. So, I mean, there, there will always be the, you know, the, the people that have a little bit more money or the people that are educated that can build the new homes and that can afford, you know, the designer or the custom builder. But like you said, most people just can't. So the only way to make it affordable for them is that the entire industry changes, you know, the entire building code has to be upgraded, the entire energy efficiency standard and everything has to be changed. It's, it just has to happen. And then the next thing is we have to bring in incentives for landlords and investors. So, for instance, what's what's happening in, in Europe is that for once people are forced uh, to have energy ratings or energy assessments if they sell houses or if, they, if you lease out houses and they have to have a minimum standard. So if your house doesn't perform to a standard, the landlord has to upgrade them. You know, fact, you can't get around it. Um, next thing is if you uh, want to spend money on energy efficiency upgrades, you get actual um, grants from the government. You know, so the government gives you money or uh, you can get 0% interest rate if you upgrade your house. You know, lots of incentives there uh, for landlords or the, the next step forward for developers. What they're actually doing is if you build a really high performing home and some countries or states even have that if you prove you go to the high-performing passive house standard, they're allowed to have higher density on the land. You know, that they might be able to build an extra story on top or they might be able to build bigger apartments. So that means they can still get their money back, you know, because they, they can build more, but they produce better houses. So these are just some examples on, you know, what some other countries do. Um, or, for instance, you get better mortgages if you build high-performing homes. You know, there are lots and lots of different um, incentives. What I found a bit sad is that, you know, there are so many things in, that other countries have done that have worked because, you know, uh, we're kind of 30 or 40 years behind to what some other European countries are doing. And it, it makes me 
quite sad that we can't just copy it. You know, can't we just see, okay, what did wrong there? Uh, or, you know, on what were the things that are working and slowly start to implement them rather than keep, you know, pushing it on whatever. It's all too hard. It's too expensive. We have coal. We have gas. Who cares? So that was my rambling. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is perfectly fine. I will find, um, be less guilty about my final question, which is also <laughs> a bit rambly. <Yeah. laughs> it's a three paragraph question. So excuse me, I'm going to have to read from the notes a bit, but it's just so, okay. so interesting. I find on a podcast to have someone from within the building sector, even though, <laughs> you know, eco design <laughs> is very far from the norm. Um, and this is because I'm afraid to admit, I've often painted the construction industry in the property sector as antithetical to the degrowth and post-growth movements of what this podcast is all about, along yeah. with the finance sector. And this is because all sectors at large rely on an ever-growing customer base to justify projects done on ever-increasing scales to the benefit of a diminishing number of capital holders um, like the Harry Triggerboffs of this world. I've said on a few occasions on PGAT that we need to stop making and building new things and reorient towards a culture of using what is already here on mm. diminishing scales. Um, on moving from Melbourne to Albany WA, I came with a mindset that I was only ever going to buy and establish housing and improve on it. But as it turned out, the only established housing I could afford was asbestos buildings and small blocks, meaning I'd have to knock them down anyway. So I've ended up having to uh, shift my morality somewhat and buying vacant land because at least it gives the opportunity to get the building right for the first time around while establishing a large and hopefully productive garden. Yeah. Um, as I said before, we've never had someone from the construction sector on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, so to wrap up, I'm curious if you find yourself navigating a tension between wanting long-term systemic change, but in the meantime, needing to work within the system mm. uh, in which a financial system is willing to lend to customers in order to build on new release land, which may possibly be undermined in a post-growth society. Um, what would be your vision for a post-growth society in which yeah. eco-housing sector may continue to flourish? Mm. Um, yeah, I think there are a few things to it. I mean, for once, like you said, you know, we are design business, so you're obviously, you know, we make our money with designing homes and that just just kind of, you know, what we do. But having said that, for me, it's really important to give back to the community and, you know, share my knowledge and, you know, I do lots of blog posts and, you know, I enjoy talking with you and, you know, other people and, you know, it's, it's hard to get me to shut up um, because I really think, you know, you have to spread the word and you, you just can't know what you don't know. And I think people have to know that there are better options and they have to demand better. I mean, that, that's one thing. Um, and also I know that... Um, Many people just can't afford those high-end homes or those, those fleshy homes. And what we do is we take on a lot of very small renovation, very small retrofits. And I know a lot of those people, they're struggling because most designers or architects, they're not interested. They don't want to help them. It's not enough money in it. You know, it might just be retrofits, you know, helping people to get the house just more energy efficient. And the thing is, we don't really make money with those projects. But, you know, ideally, they shouldn't make a loss. Sometimes they do. Um, but as those projects are really close to my heart. And so one thing is I want to keep doing them, even if they're not good in the business sense of things, but it, that's, that's kind of part in, you know, that, that has to happen. The next thing is many other people can't even afford 
to do that. You know, there are still many people that have whatever a, a drafty or they go with a volume builder home, but they have questions. So because of that, then we started to offer consultancy service. You know, if, if someone just wants help with the builder or with plans, we try to do that. Um, and on top of that, a few years ago, we started offering free design consultations. So, you know, even going one step further, if just someone has some questions and doesn't know what to do or how can I make my house less drafty, you know, that's one thing we try to do from that sense. So that's a little bit, you know, how we try to give, say, back as a business or, you know, help. Um, but going back to the question with the with the whole industry or, you know, how to, to go past the throwaway society, I would say. Um, and one big problem is with Australia, like, like we said before, that many people just build for investment. You know, houses are typically done not for long term. You, you, you build a house or most people live in a house for seven years and then they move on. And I think um, people just have to rethink their houses. And when you come up with a design, you really have to think long term. You have to think about flexible, multifunctional spaces. How can the house grow with you? How can you have multi-generational spaces? So um, what, what typically happens in, in Germany with most of the homes is, and you know, land is, is, is sparse in Germany. You know, you might have smaller lots. So people have two, three or four story homes. And then typically one apartment or one space is on one level. And then let's say if a young couple buys a house, you know, they might live on one or two levels and the rest is rented out. So that helps them pay off the mortgage. And then over the years, if they get kids, they might take one or two levels, you know, on top of it and they use it then. And then if the kids move out again, then maybe they rent it out and then maybe at one stage the grandparents move in again. So it's just very flexible housing that can grow and change with the people's need. Um, however, that's a big problem in Australia, or especially in Victoria, for instance, in Victoria, you're not allowed to have two kitchens in one house because that is then considered having two dwellings. And yeah, long story, we could talk about that for a very long time, a whole topic in itself. But in, in, in Australia, actually, it's uh, the entire building regulations are kind of almost against this multi-generational living. I mean, there, there are ways around it and um, it, it can be done, but it's a bit harder. But I think um, that's one, one big thing that, you know, needs to happen just a shift in how people live or how, how houses are designed that they're designed in a way that you can change them and also just build better quality and i always say you know spend as much money as you can on your insulation on your windows because you will never ever change them again but you know you, you, your kitchen or your light fittings you can potentially upgrade again in 10 or 20 years you know that's fine and if your house has good bones you can upgrade it later because in 20 or 30 years, probably we have quadruple of glazing or maybe even five layers of glazing. Who knows? But it, at least, you know, you have to make sure that the, the structure is well done and, you know, that you can keep working with it. I think that that's one part of the story. And the other big thing is, and I'm sure you, you've talked about that as, a lot as well, is the urban sprawl. You know, we just have to stop. We have to stop going out and... I think it, it, it's still does the big Australian dream. Everyone wants their big land with the big home and everything. But it, it's just not feasible anymore. We just can't go further and further out. I think people have to rethink their, their life a little bit or their dream a little bit. And even though it might be or it is cheaper to live, you know, somewhere really, really far, far away. But if that means that, you know, you drive hours on the road or hours on the train, is it really that sustainable as a family? 
you know, do you really want to spend hours and hours on the train or in the car just for your work life, you know, to get to work? Um, obviously, now with COVID and everyone working from home, this has, you know, is a little bit easier. But I think, you know, pe people just have to rethink. And, you know, you, you can make a beautiful home, a beautiful family home in an apartment, you know, with a nice balcony or with an outdoor garden. It's just, um, you know, you, you don't have to have this freestanding home on a big block in order to be happy. And one thing I did observe uh, with a lot of, you know, the older European designs and even in the inner suburbs of uh, Australia and times yore, like in Fitzroy and Melbourne, mm. that you didn't have the dichotomy of outer suburban house of grass or yeah. a concrete apartment. You actually had um, medium density um, mini apartments or a building with perhaps four apartments in and then a, a sizable yard around it mm. or or townhouses that you know are all individually designed look nice have a public green space so I feel falling into in the dichotomy of one or the other is, is something we need to move on from um, mm. and the other comment that I'll just make you know the construction industry will need to change with the times particularly i suspect what's already happening um that there are um shortages in building materials Definitely. people blame that on um covid but i think there's a limit to growth aspect to that Definitely. yeah and i think it's 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 as, as well about you know circular economy you know it, it's it's a fairly new-ish word but you know ultimately this is where we have to go to, you know, we, we have to build houses that where, where materials can be reused. So, you know, if a, if a house has to be demolished, then, you know, we have to think about ways, okay, how can those materials be reused? We, we, we can't just keep producing and building and wasting and, you know, just put it into landfill. It's just, it's just the worst. It's so true. And in that we're both in furious agreement. So, uh, look, Thank you so much, um, Simone. I've had a look on the website and the house designs and um, so many of them look absolutely um, brilliant. You're improving the look of um, New Design Melbourne, which uh, <laughs> which I think, um, and, and Victoria as well. I, I wish you were in Albany so you could help design my house. But <laughs> We have now a few projects in Queensland or uh, New South Wales, but yeah, we haven't ventured to your part just yet. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for being willing to um, be moving from the continent in Europe, uh, which one standard of building to Australia with quite another and for turning that frustration into proactiveness. I really yeah. appreciate that. I think our country needs more people like you. Um, for those listening from Victoria who are considering building a new eco home or otherwise want to find out more about Gruen and yourself, where can they go and how can they say hi? Yes, so probably best to find us uh, yeah, on Facebook or Instagram. So Facebook is just uh, Queen Eco Design um, and yeah, uh, Instagram as well. Uh, we also have a, a Facebook group, our Queen Eco Design Sustainable Living Tribe, where we share a bit more, you know, uh, information and education or we have uh, guest speakers from the industry to give some tips and tricks um yeah and otherwise our website i would say well thank you so much simone i learned so much from this conversation <laughs> thank you. and um great to talk to someone from the inside <laughs> as well from with the, with the industry knowledge and great that there are people out there with this broader 
um, picture in mind uh, within the construction sector. It's really uh, given me some hope during this conversation. So thank, thank you. you. No, no, my pleasure, my pleasure. to Postgrowth Australia podcast. I'm your host, Michael Bayliss, and we spoke with Simone Schenkel from Gruen Eco Design. We also heard the track Little Pete's Playground by WA Band Soon. Do you live in the Victoria end of the Australian continent and thinking of building your own eco home? Simone to go to, information in the episode description. Many thanks again to Simone for your brilliantly articulated insights on this episode of PGAP.
Does the state of housing and urban planning touch a nerve for you like it does for Simone and I? Well then share this episode among your friends, family and colleagues and let's get this subject out there and discuss. We're coming up to a federal election after all, so perfect time as any to put our leaders as well as their property investing donors to the test. Rate and review PGAP on Apple Podcasts and spread the steady state gospel far and wide. Got your own ideas of how we can solve the housing problem or the growth-based obsessed neoliberal dystopia playing out for that matter? Contact PGAP anytime and spill the beans. The next two episodes of PGAP are promising to be very exciting. I won't give away much more other than my unqualified enthusiasm, so stick around. Until then, folks, until then.